Let me invite you, if you would be so inclined, to turn in God's Word to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible and want to use one of the ones in the seats in front of you, there's two different versions we actually have, two different volumes, I should say. And so it's either going to be page 848 or page 902 in that uh, particular version. But John chapter 15 overflowing with Jesus in a world that hates him. And the sermon this morning is number seven in our series from Jesus's mission discourse that's here in John chapters 13 through 16. And the series is entitled Trinity, Mission, and Me, How the Family of God Overflows with His Love, Light, and Life-Giving Work in a World that Hates Him. And we're planning on seven messages altogether. So we're coming down the home stretch. This is, or I'm sorry, we're planning on nine altogether. So yeah, a little bit longer of a home stretch. Uh, but we are coming down the home stretch with this. And up to the point of where we're going to be this morning, beginning in verse 18, everything from chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 17, has focused on the relationships of Jesus' disciples with him and with one another. And in that big portion, Jesus calls his little children, as he identifies them, to trust, to love, and to obey him by loving one another for gospel witness. And if you were with us last week, as we were in chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, we saw that the essence of this call is to abide and go. It's to abide in Jesus and to go for Jesus. It's to share union with Him. Union with His life. Union with His life-giving mission. Well now, in chapter 15, verse 18, to the end of the mission discourse, to the end of chapter 16, Jesus expands His focus to talk about His disciples' relationship with the world. And world, in this context, as we see that term, world refers to the mass of unbelieving, rebellious humanity. All of mankind alienated from Christ. And in the whole section, Jesus is speaking to prepare, to comfort, and to galvanize his disciples for faithful ministry in a world that hates them. And so, beginning in chapter 15, verse 18, and this morning we're going to read through chapter 16, verse 4. In this section, Jesus is informing the expectations of what his disciples can expect as we live in this world. For those who know him and belong to him, here's what we can expect. And so this section really answers the question, if we're abiding in and going for Jesus, What should we expect? Well, I'll tell you, it's not Disneyland. So let's hear the word of Jesus in chapter 15, verse 18. And I'm going to read through chapter 16, verse 4. Here's the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, he says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. Our Father in heaven, we, we do indeed need your help. We are poor and needy. And apart from you, you've told us we can't do anything. We can't rightly understand and apply your word. And we certainly can't be courageous and faithful in such a world that hates you. So please help us now. Please show us your glory and your provision in Jesus. Father, please search us and transform us by your Holy Spirit. And please help me to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus faithfully and clearly in the things that you've revealed in this text. And we pray this in his name. Amen and amen. Well, you may be familiar, you may know a little bit about the history of the Civil War that happened in America. And the initial battle of the Civil War in 1861, as it began, is a tragic lesson about the folly of misguided expectations. That initial battle was called the First Battle of Bull Run, or also known as Manassas, and it took place on July 21, 1861, in or near Manassas, Virginia, which is about 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C. And the growing army of the Confederate States finally clashed with the Union troops on that day. It involved about 18,000 troops on both sides. Now, because the Union had expectations of quickly conquering what they thought was a ragtag and disorganized Confederate army, because of that, hundreds of northern civilians came to watch the encounter on the surrounding hills. However, 
anticipation of a quick, entertaining, and decisive Union victory soon evaporated as the Confederates were triumphant with Union troops then retreating in disarray back to Washington. At the end of the bloody day, almost 5,000 soldiers lay dead on the battlefield. And the shocked and disillusioned spectators witnessed the beginning of what would become, as we know, a brutal, grueling four-year war on American soil. It was a war which would claim almost half a million lives. That is more than the total number of Americans killed in the American Revolution, in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Gulf War combined. It is an amazing number. Yes, naive, misguided, unrealistic expectations are tragic indeed. And haven't we all experienced such things in big and small ways? Misguided expectations we've maybe had regarding politics. Misguided expectations sometimes for what's going to happen in the workplace. Misguided expectations related to the classroom. Misguided expectations related to marriage and to parenting. And misguided expectations related to being a Christian in this world. Someone has wisely said, misguided expectations are disillusionments and disappointments waiting to happen. Well, in our text this morning, John 15, 18 through chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus is preparing his people to have very realistic expectations. Somebody else has said, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is forewarning we who are his people so that we might be forearmed for how to live in this world. Now again, Jesus already having exhorted his disciples to be abiding in and going for him, to be living in union with his life and his life-giving mission, he now speaks about what his people should expect and will expect in a world that hates him. And so what should we We who are his disciples, we who are trusting Jesus Christ, what is it that we should expect in the world? Well, here's Jesus' main point. Here's the heart of what he has to say. It is this. Jesus' people in this world will be hated but helped. Jesus' people in this world will be hated but helped. That is the heart of all that Jesus says here. And specifically what he does is he gives us three expectations for what Christians will face in this world as we abide in and as we go for him. Three expectations. So that's what I want us to see as we move through the text this morning. So here's expectation number one. Expect to face real and certain hatred. Expect to face real and certain hatred. 
So Jesus begins by saying in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And with this statement and what follows, Jesus is soberly speaking of the world's hatred, not as a distant and remote possibility, but rather as a certain, present, expected reality. His logic is that those who openly identify with him will experience the same vicious vicious hatred that the world has for him. Now remember, the term world here is referring to uh, unbelieving, rebellious humanity, the whole of mankind that is alienated from God. And of course, Jesus, at the very time he is saying these things to his disciples, he is in the crosshairs of the world's fierce hostility. He's soon to be horrifically murdered through a demonic conspiracy that will involve the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders. It'll involve the self-serving Roman political leaders, and it'll involve the gullible easily manipulated crowds. And Jesus knows all of this. And he knows the same hatred that is coming upon him will come upon his people. And so then he goes on to explain in verse 19 that it is his people's union with him as he's chosen them out of the world that provokes the world's hatred. He's making the point that if we were of the world... Or if we lived as being from the world, the world would love us. And then to strengthen his point even more, in verse 20, he repeats what he had said earlier in chapter 13, verse 16, making the point that his servants are not to expect anything less than what he, our master, experienced. Those who hate him will hate we who belong to him. Those who love him and keep his word will love us and keep his word that they hear from us. And so every Christian should expect to face real and certain hatred. Well then, in verses 21 to 25, Jesus continues to bolster his encouragement as he explains the reasons why the world hates him and his people. So let me just read that again, verses 21, I'll go through 24. He says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin." Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. He's giving reasons for the world's hatred. And he's saying that the reason that he and his followers are hated is because of the sinful, ignorant, and alienated world that does not know him or his father. Separated from him. Unbelievers don't know God. And the same is true for us before we came to know God by His grace. 
And so Jesus is saying that his very presence and his proclamation and the works that he did among them confirms the unbelieving world in its inexcusability for their sinful rejection of him and their sinful rejection of the Father who sent him. He's saying his presence has confirmed this. Now, historically, Jesus is speaking of the Jewish religious leaders who would be at the tip of the spear in conspiring to kill him because of their hate of him. And so then it's interesting, in verse 25, he uses the Old Testament scripture, their own Old Testament scripture, to ironically further indict them. And he shows that what they're doing is actually fulfilling prophecy. And you may have heard that little phrase when Zach read Psalm 35 earlier. They hated me without a cause. It's in Psalm 35 verse 19. It's also found in Psalm 69 verse 4. And so he's bringing their own scripture to indict them. And this same hatred, which really was first manifest in Genesis chapter 4 going back to wicked Cain who hated and murdered his righteous brother Abel, that same hatred continues on today. In fact, earlier in John's gospel, back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said this, he said, This is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. He says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And Paul says then in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Darkness hates the light. And so, beloved Christian, expect to face real and certain hatred. You see, we who are Christians live to proclaim the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is His mission for us in this world. And we belong to His kingdom, not to the kingdoms of this world. Yes, we're in the world But we're not to be of the world. We serve the one true God, not the worldly gods of self and of money and of pleasure and of fame or comfort or a thousand other worldly gods that center on self. As God's children, we're not to share in the world's affections, the world's values, the world's ambitions or priorities. You see, the world lives for the praise and the glory of self. We, as his people, are to live for the praise and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so by his grace, we're to love him, we're to obey him, we're to proclaim him and trust him, we're to abide in and we're to go for Jesus, faithfully doing his works of love and boldly proclaiming his words of truth. It means that we are to openly identify with the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. 
And we're to expect that the light of Jesus in us will expose the sinful darkness of unbelievers in the world around us, often provoking their hate. Because in essence, if we identify with Jesus Christ by our very identification with Him, proclaiming Him, we are saying to everyone who is outside of Christ in so many words, you're wrong, you're accountable, and you need to repent. And somebody once said that to us in so many words as well, that God used to bring us to faith in Christ. But the world doesn't like that. Unbelievers don't like that. And many of you have experienced the hatred of the world. Maybe in your families, maybe in the workplace, maybe at school, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe beyond, and lots of different places. The more we overflow with Jesus in the world, the more we can expect the world to hate us. Now I will tell you, however, there is, there is a tried and true way to avoid experiencing the hatred of the world. There is a tried and true way. It's, it's simply this, avoid talking about the name of Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture. If you want to avoid the hatred of the world, avoid talking about and identifying with the name of Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture. Now, you know, the world will not hate you usually if you just talk about church or if you just talk about spirituality or religion or being a person of faith or even just talking about God in a generic way. Usually the world won't hate you. Goodness, you can even talk about things like like grace, even amazing grace or redemption. The world may not hate you for those things. But when you identify with And when you proclaim the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as He's revealed in Scripture, that's what will cause you to experience a hurricane of hate from the world. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. He alone is the exclusive way to the Father. He alone is the one to whom every single person on the planet is accountable. Jesus' people in this world will be hated. We should expect that and know that. And that's the point that Jesus is making. But we'll also be helped. And this leads to the second expectation that Jesus gives. And it is this. Not only expect real and certain hatred, but number two, expect to be helped to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Expect to be helped to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says in verses 26 and 27. And notice the contrast. Even in contrast to the world's hatred, but, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from my, the beginning. And just think about this, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Who of us, who of us in and of our own power and resources can even begin to face and endure the hatred of the world? 
Are we not in and of ourselves, just like these original disciples that Jesus is speaking to, weak, fearful, terrified, cowardly? That's the way they were. That's the way we are if we're humble enough and honest enough to admit it. And would we not, just like them, run for the hills at the first hint of hostility and opposition? In and of ourselves, we're wimps. Every single one of us. It is not in our own power to faithfully bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here's the thing. Living the Christian life in a world that hates Christ, it's not just hard. It's not just difficult. It's humanly impossible. And that's why Jesus is speaking again about the Helper, about the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows this. Remember what he said earlier in verse 5 of chapter 15 in the whole context of abiding. He says, apart from me, you can't do anything. So he helps us understand why abiding in him and going for him is so essential. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. And so with great love for his own, Jesus speaks again of the third person of the Trinity. The helper, the spirit of truth, whom Jesus would send from the Father. Now Jesus, of course, is already, he's expanding on what he's already said about the Holy Spirit earlier in chapter 14. In verses 16 and 17, also in chapter 14, verse 26. And among other things, he says there that the Holy Spirit is going to not only come alongside, but he's actually going to indwell his people. And we know that for these specific disciples that he's speaking to at that historical time, the coming of the Holy Spirit was future for them. But for all believers since then, he indwells us, the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently from the moment he converts us. That's what Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. And so Jesus is talking again here about the ministry of the Spirit. He's going to say more about the Spirit's work in chapter 16 as well. And the point to see is that he's saying, we have help from God. We have help from God. And of course, in verses 26 and 27 here in chapter 15, he's emphasizing the Spirit's witness-bearing work in which he will help and empower Jesus' people to likewise bear witness of Jesus. And to bear witness of Jesus means to testify of Jesus openly, publicly, and verbally. It means to speak of Him and to proclaim Him as He's revealed in the Scriptures which have been given by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, it's the Holy Spirit who bears witness of Jesus in the scriptures that he's given and through the scriptures that are proclaimed by we who are his people. That's how the Spirit empowers us to bear witness of Jesus. He gives both the content and the power of our message. And so therefore, as we abide in and go for Jesus, having His Spirit, having His Word in us, and depending on God through prayer, Jesus has much to say about prayer in this mission discourse, we can expect 
to bear witness of Jesus in a way that is supernatural and in a way that is confident because of God's reality and the reality of himself he's revealed in his word and in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that his word reveals. And so we should expect to be enabled by him to bear witness of Jesus, to be helped by him to bear witness of Jesus, witness that is supernatural and confident. Now, following Jesus' resurrection, and just before he ascended back to his Father in heaven, you know, many of you know, what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he says there, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then from Acts chapter 2 onward, when that promise is fulfilled and the Holy Spirit comes and fills the believers in the early church, that's exactly what we see the disciples doing throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Bearing spirit-empowered witness of Jesus even as they faced the world's hatred and hostility. Now here's something to think about as well. Even though our supernatural and confident witness for Christ will provoke the hatred of many in the world, we are not to hate them. Ever. Ever. What are we to do? Well, what did Jesus command us? He's very clear. One of those places is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and following. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And he says more things in that section about loving our enemies, and then he ends it all by saying in verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So we're to speak boldly and confidently and directly and clearly, but with a heart that loves, with a heart that seeks mercy, with a heart of God himself. And so what it means, beloved, is that if we are bearing spirit-empowered, supernatural, confident witness of Jesus, it means that we're not to be what I would just simply call Christian jerks. Christian jerks. And maybe you've seen Christians who you might fit in that category. Maybe if you're like me, sadly, there's been times where you've been guilty of being a Christian jerk. In other words, we're not to be harsh. We're not to be rude. We're not to be obnoxious or snarky or hateful. Yes, we're to be bold. We're to be confident in a spirit-empowered supernatural way that expresses the love of God. We're to have humility, compassion, patience, gracious, gentleness, wisdom, and a myriad of other fruit of the Spirit in a way that expresses Jesus himself. In fact, let me just mention two other passages that you could make reference to along these lines in terms of of what this Spirit-empowered bearing witness looks like. One of those is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 24 to 26, as Paul is giving his disciple Timothy instructions for how he's to carry on his ministry in the city of Ephesus. And he says there, 2 Timothy 2, beginning verse 24, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. 
able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after after having been captured by him to do his will. And then another passage, hear what the Holy Spirit says through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. He says there, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope, for the hope that is in you. And he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, he says, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So beloved, embrace these accurate expectations from the Lord Jesus. Expect the real and certain hatred of the world and expect to be helped to bear witness of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Well, this leads us to the third expectation that Jesus gives now in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16. And it is this, expect to experience severe and painful suffering. Expect to experience severe severe and painful suffering. And so Jesus says, verse 1, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. There's a Scottish pastor from another uh, era back in the 1800s, Charles Ross, who says that Jesus now speaks in darker colors than before. Indeed, Jesus speaks here of the escalating intensification of hatred and hostility in such a manner that will boil over in cold-hearted rejection and in cold-blooded murder. And even as Jesus himself was about to experience this rejection and murder, in a way that would demonically parade under the banner of service to God, so he knows the same thing is going to be faced by many of his disciples. And in verse 3, Jesus repeats what he said earlier in chapter 15, verse 21, that people will do these things because they don't know God. They don't know Him. They don't know the Father who sent Him. And you might be thinking to yourself, with all of this darkness, with all of this hatred and, and, and severe and painful suffering of rejection and murder, why is Jesus saying all of this to His men? I mean, we know they're already terrified. They're already afraid. Wouldn't these kinds of things just make them that much more afraid? 
To expect rejection, to expect death, to expect such hatred? Well, Jesus is wise and He's good and He's loving and that He knows that to tell them this is going to help them not fall away when the hour of these trials comes. And so that's exactly what He says, right? That right there in verse 1, He's telling them this to keep them from falling away. To keep them from stumbling, to keep them from apostatizing, to keep them from abandoning Him in the hour of trial. And then, of course, He expands this in verse 4, promising that when severe and painful suffering comes, and it's going to be ultimately through the Holy Spirit, whom He's already spoken of, they're going to remember His words. And the implication is, is that the Spirit-directed memory of what He has said will serve to strengthen their faith, to persevere and endure in the hour of suffering. And so those sobering, the remembrance of Jesus' word in that very hour will assure them, it will comfort them, it will embolden the faith of His people. Beloved, His Word, empowered by His Spirit, will do the same for you and me in every moment of suffering that He ordains in our lives. And we're to hold to Him and to pray to Him for such grace to hold to Him. Well, some of the practical impact of Jesus' words for all of His people, including you and me who are by His grace striving to abide in and go for Him, is this. We ought not to be surprised. We ought not to be surprised when severe and painful suffering comes. For so many of us, sometimes these things come in a way that just smacks us on the side of the head and we think, well, where did this come from? What is happening? The world's falling and we kind of freak out. And Jesus is saying, no, expect this. Expect it. And understand that it's coming and that He is sufficient. As I said earlier, the one who is forewarned is forearmed. And so we ought not be surprised. Peter says this very thing. Peter again, remember Peter who denied Christ because of his fear and his cowardice. He had been restored. He says in 1 Peter 4 verses 12 to 14, He says, and think about his own experiential framework of what he's saying. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so you see, beloved, what we see in the life and in the experience of Jesus in the gospel accounts, what we see also in the lives and the experiences of the apostles in the books of Acts, in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles that they wrote. And what we see in the lives and in the experiences of God's people throughout church history is that over time, there is an escalation and an intensification of hatred and hostility from the world against Jesus' people. 
We see that in, in all of these aspects of history, in Jesus' own life, his disciples, and throughout church history. In other words, hatred and opposition may start mildly. Maybe it's just with sort of quiet indifference or, or patronization. You know, that, that Christian thing, that's really nice for you. Good job. That's, that's very nice. Maybe with soft insults and mocking. Maybe people marginalizing or avoiding you in various contexts. But over time, if you continue to abide in and go for Jesus and continue to bear spirit-empowered witness for Him, over time the water pot will boil over. And as we strive to be faithful in bearing witness for Jesus, the world's hatred for us will escalate and it will intensify. And again, some of you know this experientially. Some of you have experienced that very thing in your family, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in other arenas where maybe it didn't start intense, but it's escalating and it's intensifying. And the more we're faithful the more that's going to happen, even as it is already so for so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world. And just think about within our own country and context, there are so many flashpoints, aren't there, in which righteousness and unrighteousness collide. In other words, issues within which Christians must bear spirit-empowered witness of Jesus Christ with wisdom, with grace, praying for God's help. But we must bear witness, even as we know to do so is going to bring hatred and persecution in response. Think about what some of those flashpoints are. There's the whole LGBTQ plus agenda and movement. There's all the various insane gender identity issues. There's all kinds of issues of ethnicity and critical race theory. There's the wickedness of abortion. There's issues of parenting and educating our children. And the list goes on and on and on. Beloved, as Christians, we're not called to bury our heads in the sand as if we don't live in a wicked world. And we're not called to just circle the wagons and avoid all contact with the world. No, we have been sent on a mission by our Lord Jesus Christ and we're to overflow with Him in this world. We're to proclaim to this world that there is salvation. As Peter said in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else but Him. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the issues of our day, those become the context, those become the opportunities, those become the platforms for us to bear faithful witness of Jesus in our families, in the workplace, at the store, on the playground, on our school campus, anywhere and everywhere Come what may. We may get fired from our jobs. We may get disowned by our families. We may get kicked out of school or any number of other things. The issue for us is, by God's grace, by His Spirit, are we going to continue to abide in and go for Him, even within the hatred and the opposition that we will face. But in it all, you see, we're to expect that God will help us. 
that he will hold us, that he will be faithful to us as he has been faithful to his people always. And so as I said at the beginning, beloved, misguided expectations are disillusionments and disappointments waiting to happen. But Jesus guides us in his mission with clear and realistic expectations. As his people in this world, we can expect to face real and certain hatred. We can expect to be helped to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And we can expect severe and painful suffering. Jesus' people in this world will be hated, but we will be helped. And I might say, too, that with these expectations, we can also expect God to be faithful in everything else he has promised for us. Even in the mission discourses we've seen earlier in chapters 13, 14, in the earlier part of chapter 15, he is going to indwell us. We expect that and we count on that. We can expect to richly taste Jesus' peace in the midst of these things. We can expect to deeply drink of Jesus' joy in the midst of these things. We can expect Him to answer prayer for His help and for His guidance and His provision. And we can expect to share Jesus' glory with the Father forever in heaven as He's promised and prayed for. And I'll close with this. Acts chapter 5, you don't need to turn there necessarily, but it tells us of Peter and the apostles having already once been arrested, threatened, and then released by the religious authorities because they've been proclaiming Jesus. Acts 5 tells us of them being arrested again and treated even more severely. Peter and the apostles, they'd been bearing faithful witness and they wouldn't stop. They knew that they had to obey God and not man. And so these bloodthirsty religious leaders actually in Acts 5, they wanted to kill them, but they were persuaded not to, at least for a time. And so then in verse 40 of Acts 5, we're told uh, that when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. It's almost mentioned just sort of casually. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So this is the second time they've now been arrested. This time they've not only threatened them, but they've beat them, and then they've let them go. You say, well, how did the apostles respond to this intensified suffering? Well, listen to verses 41 and 42. We read, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What were they doing? They're rejoicing. They're experiencing, they're drinking deeply of Jesus' own joy. And then verse 42 says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Wow. How could they rejoice amid such suffering? How could they continue to bear courageous witness of Christ? They're abiding in Him. They're going for Him. And one very practical, specific key to that is that together with all of God's people, they were seeking the Lord in prayer. They were seeking the Lord in prayer. And we're not going to go there, but in Acts 4, in the chapter previous, in verses 23 to 31, we're told that after the apostles were arrested and released the first time, 
What they did is they made a beeline for their friends, for their brothers and sisters in Christ in their local church. They, they went to them, they gathered with them, they gave a report, and then we're told they all lifted their voices together to God. Together, they poured out their hearts to God in prayer. Together, they remembered God's word, his promises, his sovereignty, and his mission. And together, they asked God for boldness and provision for them to be faithful amid the threats that they were facing. And together, the rest of chapter 4 tells us they sacrificially loved and served each other with one heart and with one soul. Together. Together. And you see, beloved, this is God's will and call for us, abiding in and going for Jesus together, together overflowing with Jesus, even in a world that hates him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we, as always, thank you for your word uh, that feeds us, that nourishes us, that convicts us and yet encourages us in who you are and what it means to belong to you and all that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ within all of the fullness of your triune glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, for every single one of us, these these things make our feet kind of rattle in our boots and our knees kind of knock together and there's a big lump in our throat because we know this is reality and many have experienced it in various ways. And Father, we trust ourselves to you. And even as we sang earlier, we know that whatever you ordain is right. And so help us by your grace together to be trusting you, to be seeking you, to be abiding in you and going for you and being faithful in every context, in every opportunity that you give us. And we thank you that you forgive us when we fail and you seek to restore us and to have us continue to press ahead. And so, Lord, help us in these matters. We thank you for your word and for your purposes, even in gathering us to feed us now. In Christ's name, amen and amen.